big deal today. Special agent retired, Stephen Murphy, one of the one of the main main guys that helped track down and eventually capture uh, the the elusive uh, drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. A story that so many people have been fascinated, captivated by. Still to this day, like we're all you know enthralled with the details. We you find out more every day. You, along with your partner Javier Pena, um, and and obviously a, a team of of other agents and and Colombian police as well. You know this story, like I said, captured so many people. Eventually inspired the hit series Narcos on Netflix, which I have not missed a single frame of. And you uh, you guys wrote co-wrote a book, Manhunters: How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Uh, it can be you can get it uh, on the website deanarcos.com. Sales outside the U.S. can be ordered through eBay. You guys have been going on a speaking tour now in its sixth year. And coming soon, a weekly true crime podcast, Game of Crimes, uh, which will feature a guest, both good and bad guys. Hope to release in early June. All exciting stuff. This is, uh, this is super cool, man, because, you know, as a kid, there's something about when you learn stories as a kid. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm sure it's not thrilling to hear uh from your part but as a kid i'm like man this escobar guy sounds pretty cool uh <laughs> like a, he's got a zoo and he's got a bunch of chicks and cocaine and money like yeah he's living it up <laughs> but yeah, you know what tom we're probably gonna have somebody stop by and talk to you a little yeah, later so yeah. just don't resist okay okay don't okay <laughs> um but yeah and then you know as you grow up you're like oh he's he's actually not that cool of a guy <laughs> uh, no. now um i i think one of the things that like so i have a friend of mine who's a colombian who grew up in colombia and left like after 92 93 and that in the i don't think people really i mean hearing it firsthand from him really understand how destructive the this cartel was to the people that inhabited that lived in this country i mean it was really an insane place to be living at that time and you were there as an american yeah, you know, DEA didn't hire me because I was real smart. Uh huh. <laughs> hey, we need a couple suckers to go to Columbia. I'll go. I'll I mean, go. when you got that assignment, because you're obviously you're an agent. You're in Miami, I think, right? Uh, to, I was. And and then they're like, like when you go to Columbia, is he already a worldwide known name? Oh yeah. So I got there and um, oh, I got to Miami in 1987. Spent four years there, and then went to Columbia in 1991. And, you know, I mean, Miami, South Florida was still the wild west for the cocaine trafficking yeah. back during that time. And it was, you know, if you're going to be in DEA, that that was the place to be at that time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, prior to that, I knew who Pablo was, or I read about Pablo. I didn't know who he was, but, uh, every case we worked on in South Florida, the cocaine directly tied back to his organization. Now, I never had a case up at his level. It was always a sale here, underlings over there, you know, yeah. these different groups. And they were very compartmentalized, but was very familiar with who Pablo Escobar was. He was under indictment in the United States. But to be honest with you, when I went to Columbia, I had no idea I was going to be assigned to work, uh, you know, against him and the Medellin cartel. You, you had so, no idea for real? You just thought it's, this no. could be any assignment? Yeah. When you go to a new office, typically you don't know what cases you'll have until you get there. Now, so, yeah, because I, I grew up uh, part of my uh, youth in Florida, in Vero Beach, Florida. And one of the things that I discovered was uh, there were two kids whose dads uh, were coke runners and they would go to the Bahamas. 
Um, and that was their, their thing is taking boats over to the Bahamas and running Coke back to Florida, you know? Very, very, very common, you know, and, and I mean, people think we're joking when you say, but there were actually bales of weed and bales of cocaine that would float up on the beaches in South Florida. Oh yeah. That makes sense to me. And we used to joke, you know, if you can't, if you're a DE agent or if you're a federal agent, you can't make a drug case in South Florida. You need to find a different occupation. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it was everywhere. You just go for a jog and you're going to find some cocaine, man. It's, it's, it's it was crazy. It was crazy. But you know, you mentioned the Colombians. Uh, I, I, pr I probably went down with a very jaundiced view. You know, I'm thinking everybody down there is corrupt and uh -huh. it's probably an ugly third world country. And man, when we were, my wife and I, she went with me. We were so pleasantly surprised. It's one of the most beautiful places we've been to in the world. Yep. And we've, we've been to a lot of places in the world. The people there, the law abiding citizens are very accepting, which, you know, when I was shocked by that, I guess I just thought everybody in the country was corrupt and that was a horrible thing to think about them. But what we found is that, uh, as long as you go in and try to get along, mm -hmm. I mean, if you go with an ugly American attitude and you go in and fuss at them because they can't speak English, right. That's it's gonna, their country. It's their, it's of their course. country. You're supposed to speak Spanish, but my wife, she never went to language school. So she would go shopping by herself. She would barter prices. She would take and make exchanges. And I'm like, how in the world do you do that? And this is what really demonstrated us the, the real personality of Colombian people is as long as you had a smile on your face, you use the words that, you know, be willing to laugh at yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and just try and get along. They would bend over backwards for you. So, uh, but now on our speaking tour, whenever there's a Columbians in almost every audience we speak to, whether it's a corporate event or a public event or even high schools. And we always try to make ourselves available to the audience after the show. And almost 100% of the time, a Colombian will come up to you and they want to meet you. They want to take a picture and then they want to thank you for what you did to try to help their country. Yeah. No better feeling than that. Now, when you get down there, you get down in 91 mm -hmm. and you arrive, you know, you obviously know what, like, you know, you're, you're a DEA agent. So you're going down there for a reason. You say, you don't know your assignment yet. Do you arrive and they're like, Hey, you're on, you're on Escobar. Yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> it, it, it took a little longer than that. Cause we, you know, we flew in on a Sunday night, Monday, you go to the embassy. Um, yeah, it takes several days to get all security clearances and mm -hmm. your badges and accesses and all that stuff. And you're meeting people in the office. Um, and then and DEA in our, in our culture, you kind of give a new guy a little bit of time to see who he gravitates to, mm -hmm. you know, cause that will develop into a good partnership. Well, at that time, Javier's partner was a guy named Gary Sheridan, and they were the two primary case agents on the Medellin cartel. Well, it turns out Gary and I had some mutual acquaintances in law enforcement in the United States, and we just kind of hit it off immediately. Um, and then that led into working with him a little bit more and then working with Javier. And then Gary got promoted and moved up to Barranquilla. So at that point, and this was probably just a few months into Colombia, that's when Javier and I became the two case agents. Man. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, but... What a, I mean, a wild assignment to get. I think, you know, for anybody in law enforcement, especially DEA to know, hey, you're gonna, you're on the Medellin cartel. <laughs> it's like, it seems like. I gotta tell you the first night, <laughs> the first night my wife and I are there, you know, we took our cat with us. So instead of putting a hotel, putting us in a hotel or an apartment, they put us in a boarding house, mm -hmm. which was horrible. It sucked. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, we're laying in the bed. The bed is one of those sway back beds where you both roll down in the middle on top of each other. Uh -huh. We've got luggage all over the floor and the cat's going crazy, not knowing where to go. And so we, you know, it's probably like two o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden we hear gunshots outside the window and we're in the nice part of Bogota. So I rolled over and I had my nine millimeters on the, the nightstand there. I rolled over and grabbed that and, you know, we tried to get up to the window to peek out. And the next thing in heard was automatic machine gun fire. Whoa. And I'm looking at my nine millimeter, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to tick somebody off of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we just put it back up on the nightstand laid down on the floor for a while. So we didn't get hit by stray, by stray rounds. It, we're looking at each other going, what the hell do we get ourselves into I mean, this, this that, time? <laughs> that's a welcome to the big leagues kind of moment, you know? Oh, well, that's that's definitely an oh shit moment, yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah, when you hear automatic guns outside the window <laughs> of the nice part of Bogota. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that always like struck me, and, and even to this day, right, is like just how violent the cartels have been and, and still are. Now it's like... It shifted and we see all the stories kind of come out of Mexico and it's mm -hmm. just brutal violence. Back then you were seeing it firsthand with the, the Colombians. I mean, what kind of violence did you, you know, even in the aftermath, did you encounter? Did you see just horrific things that they had done? It was things that, uh, that human beings should never see in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't want to get dramatic here. No, I know. You know, you know but, I, uh, I'd like to have a good time, but you know, the truth was uh, one of Javier's informants, he had, I think it was five informants killed simply because they were informants mm -hmm. by Pablo. And I don't want to get too graphic, but when we found the body, unspeakable things had been done to the body and then they burned it. So all we found was a skeleton. Uh, Can I ask and that you was though, typical. what, what do you think, like what gets a human being to be capable of that kind of violence, you know, because like most of us, you know, we would have just like, you, even without you describing in detail, like n just having read these stories and, and followed news, you hear these things and you're like, man, what, how does somebody get to be that violent? That's a very good question. I wish I had the answer. You know, I'm, I minored in psychology in college uh, and, and we never covered this part yeah. about somebody getting to this level. Uh, you know, and that's what kind of ticks us off when we hear stories about these, these myths that, that Pablo Escobar was some kind of Robin hood, that he was a dedicated family man. Yeah. None of that's true. You know, he did go in. So this Robin hood myth, he did go in and, and people that were living on the edge of a trash dump, now, he did go in and he built housing for him, free housing, mm -hmm. you know, and they're small little apartments, but still it's, it's a roof over your head yep. and a lock on your door. And the soccer fields, got, right? He would build that in like poor communities. Soccer fields, clinics. He gave away food. He gave away money. And, and all those are very nice things to do. All right. So but, just stop there. He's a great guy. What's your problem, man? Yeah. <laughs> well, then when he, when his Sicarios, his assassins, yeah. his bodyguards that are protecting him are being killed, he needs to go recruit new people. Where do you think he went to? Did he go right to back. the place that he built things for people? Oh, <laughs> you know, he did. Cause they looked at him like a God. Yeah. I mean, there's, and you think about it, if you were in that situation, you'd put that man on a pedestal too. Sure. I would yeah, because it, he helped out my mom. Right. It's a very so, calculated move and a, and a smart move for, uh, an evil, uh, crime Lord to right. take part in. That's it. That's exactly right. So instead of a, a Robin hood, what we call him is a master manipulator. I mean, I'm a big fan. He, I think he's a great guy, you know? <laughs> and again, a car is going to come by to see you later yeah. today. 
See, so you're in L.A., right? What's that? Oh, yeah. How'd you know that? Um, Trained criminal investigator. Come on. Yeah, Tom. no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> no, it it is, um, you know, his story in particular, like, you know, very well uh, portrayed in Narcos. Um, you know, it's 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 a common story that you that you see from a lot of uh, cartel drug lord types, which is like coming from a very poor background, having access to to this industry like you know that the fact that it's produced and made in in your backyard and then and obviously having like a a greed like a a strong desire for more more money more violent like you know all for me kind of thing and yeah i mean obviously he's a a psychopath and a a master manipulator like you said and extremely absolutely his his ego was out of control. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be president of Colombia. He wanted to be the ruler of the world. And this, I'm not just saying that. That's an actual. And, <laughs> that's and what he really wanted. And like in ways, he was getting there. I mean, I remember that you know he ran and was elected to Congress. I think right, and that was t- yep. ended up being temporary. I, I don't know if they voted him out, or they kicked him out, or something. But it was well. Like his yep. main they, thing was like when getting elected, if I remember correctly, was he just wanted to get rid of the extradition law so that you, you hit the nail on the head yeah. that's exactly right yeah that's a super cool thing to do that's smart <laughs> well he got elected as an alternate congressman but once the election was over the primary congressman decided to retire so oh. that bumps him up to the primary slot and he did make a couple of congressional sessions but people knew who he were who he was and the attorney general at that time rodrigo laro bonilla had the stones to call him what he was in open Congress in session. Yeah. He unveiled a photograph of a mugshot. This is that iconic picture. Everybody sees of Pablo where he's smiling in his mugshot, yeah, holding like, his number. He's like, Hey, who smiles when they're getting their mugshot taken. A right? super cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Laura Bonilla uh, revealed all that in open session of Congress. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that, he paid for that with his life. Pablo had him killed. Yeah, man. It just like, just anybody that got in the way was was disposable. Yeah, and he had, you know, he has. It's like, well, it's not like he had no remorse. He has no guilt feelings. Yeah, he's one of these guys that could be sitting here like you and I having a conversation, and you say something that ticks me off, and just, just that's next, it. Next, who am I going to talk to next? Wow. You know? Yeah, it's. I I don't understand that. I'm sure you don't either. Most most people in the world don't understand that mindset how you can have so little disregard for life, how you can set, set off car bombs in front of shopping centers yeah. where mothers are with their children buying school supplies. Yeah. You know, we attribute Javier, we've been Javier and I, we attribute 10 to 15,000 murders to Pablo Escobar. Damn. His last remaining Sicario a guy called Popeye. Yeah. Hota, hota. He, he did better than we did. He's he's got his own YouTube channel. He yeah, had Netflix show. I remember. He had all he had this stuff before we did. <laughs> but he says the number. There's a documentary out that we're both on separately, obviously. And when they presented him with that number, he said that's not right. He said the number's more like fifty thousand people that Pablo's responsible for killing. That's unbelievable. That's like an unimaginable number. I mean, and that's it from really Popeye, is. which like for people who don't know, that was like his right hand man like his main Sicario hitman that basically Pablo said jump and he was how high. I mean, he was just did whatever. Right. There's that story uh, that um, Popeye told the story that one time he was with a girl 
in bed and Pablo called him and told him while the girl was in bed, like kill her. And he was like, okay, just hung up yeah. and shot her in the head twice. Yeah. And it's cold hearted. It? it is. And the crazy thing was that in this interview that I saw with him about that, you know, um, that, that, uh, Pablo had said to him, uh, what is it? Uh, plato o plomo? Like, uh, a, plato plomo. Yeah. Money or lead, like basically get paid or get killed. Um, like choose. But he said it about, you know, to her and he said the message was clear. But Popeye also said, he goes, I didn't hesitate. And if, if Escobar had said to kill my dad, I would have done that. He goes, he was God to me and I just did whatever he said. Well, there's a sick individual right there, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And then he claimed himself to have murdered like over 250 people personally. On this Papa. documentary, he says that he personally killed almost 300 people and he arranged almost 3,000 murders. That's insane. And he also, he also walks around with a smile. He's like, well, you know, that was back then and everything's fine. I'm like, you're like, okay. Well, yeah. Not anymore. Not He's anymore. Dead now. He's dead now. But yeah, but I mean, pretty wild that you have like the Pablo character, you know, the, the, the person I'm saying, and then to be able to surround yourself with people also like that, that are just like, yeah, let's just. Yeah, and I was telling you, when he goes into those barrios to recruit, mm -hmm. you know, he, he would get, you know, I mean, they'd come out and they'd kiss his hand. He'd hug him and kiss him. And he'd say, you know, my friends, you know, Pablo is battling the government of Colombia. I want the best for the poor people. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. fighting for you. And I need, you know, 100 people who are willing to come and kill for me, who are willing to die for me. And the sad part of that is you might have two or 300 people step up. I'll do it, Pablo. I'll do it. Wow. And their ages were typically 13 to 20, maybe Man. 21. Young guys with like typically probably nothing going on, you know, in their lives. And they're like, oh, this, this will be something to do. That's well, Pablo. Uh, Javier uh, helped the Columbia National Police arrest Sicario. This kid was 15 years old. So they got him back and, and, they don't know they're not supposed to talk to the police. So they talked, you know, and mm -hmm. Javier's interviewing him. And uh, at that time, Pablo had put out a $100 bounty on Colombian police officers. Go kill a cop. I'll pay you a hundred bucks. So this kid admitted to killing 10 Colombian police officers. You see, you just walk up to them on the street in uniform. I got a 38 revolver, cap them in the back of the head. So at the end of the day, I go to a certain address. Hey, I killed three guys today. Okay. Here's 300 bucks. Javier said, so what'd you do with the money? Well, you know, most of the money I gave to my mom, but you know, I needed enough money. So I had good tennis shoes and jeans. I liked those and I needed some beer money. Other than that, my mom got everything. And, and just like casually saying it. Just, that's how cold hearted and calculated they were. Man. Yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, it's a fascinating thing like to try to understand how you get to that. And it does feel like, by the way, I don't know if, if you'll see it the same way. It feels like, the Mexican cartels have upped the the level of violence and brutality. Like as crazy as those stories are from Colombia, I mean, now you see like people's hanging from overpass freeways with their heads cut off. I mean, you're like, what in the fuck? I remember there was a, a Mexican cartel story where they went to, there was a, a neighborhood where they'd gotten some pushback or something. So they went in the school, killed everybody at the school and stabbed notes into the bodies. Like shit that you can't even conceive of. Yeah, there's there's some evil, evil, you know, we our, our this new podcast we're starting is a true crime podcast. So, you know, I don't I don't feel bad talking to you about it because I'm not in competition with you. Here, no, but, no. Um, it's and it's called Game of Crimes podcast. Evil is coming. Mm -hmm. Evil's already here. It's been here there. 
it seems like the Mexicans want to outdo Pablo. Yeah. I saw an article last year that rated the 10 richest, 10 or 15 richest criminals of all time. Pablo is still number one with an estimated $30 billion in assets. Number Damn. two was Chapo, but Chapo was like in the one or $2 billion. still a lot of money. Yeah. 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 No, we're close to what Pablo Escobar had done. And that's killing them. They're like, we want that Pablo money when you yeah, get up there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, they want to outdo everybody else, you know, sure. and, and I know they're trying to strike fear and it strikes fear in my heart. I, we, oh, yeah. <laughs> we got booked, uh, before COVID to go to Mexico city and speak and the promoter down there, you know, when they book you, they, they did file a deposit with your agent. And, uh, after a couple of months, uh, the promoter down there called and says, Hey, we can't guarantee these guys safety down here. We're backing out of the contract and they lost money. They lost their deposit, but that's, wow. I will never go to Mexico again. Never. Uh, yeah. I mean, if I were you, I think I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I well, think, people look at me now and it's like this old man, he's harmless and I am harmless. I'm just, well, you're know. harmless, but I mean, you know, it's like you could be a notch on someone's belt. You know what I mean? Like, like guess what I did? Yeah. And it's like, and here's a hundred bucks. Cause you got a guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't tell my wife there's money on me. She might take <laughs> no. me out. Well, <laughs> I mean, but when you were, when you were going after, uh, Pablo, and the Medellin cartel, he had a $300,000 bounty on you. And yep. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but it, it, it's, it sounds terrifying. Like, I don't know how you operate, how you get up and go to bed knowing that at the time. Well, the, when they first tell you that, it is a little bit disconcerting. <laughs> um, you know, I think, well, I haven't even done anything to the guy yet. Why is he pissed off at me? But, and I, this is, I know people find this hard to believe. I'm not a brave person and I'm not, I'm just, you know, I know how to do a job and I know how to focus on a mission. Mm -hmm. I'm not overly brave, but you kind of get complacent to the danger, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're hyper aware of what's going around you all the time. You know, we're jumping in these Huey helicopter gunships. That's got the 30 caliber machine guns in the doorways and we're flying in with Columbia national police doing raids. Most of the time, they hear you coming and they run off into the mountains or into the woods. So you didn't encounter any resistance, but not always. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a good feeling sitting on a helicopter when bullets are coming at you. Oh my God. So, um, but you do, you just, you just stay very aware. You know, I'll, I have four kids and, uh, them and my wife, you believe me, they've been taught to be aware of their surroundings. Yeah. I mean, I met, I mean, oh. you must have, were you on high alert though at that time in Columbia? Like when you're, did, would you walk into a grocery store and normal? Believe it or not. Uh, yes. Um, when we first got there, I mean, you can see me on screen. I, uh, I'm English Irish is my heritage. I'm about as white as you get. You know? super, I don't blend. Super gringo. Yeah. yeah. I don't blend into a Hispanic country. Yeah. I'm six two. I, you know, I've got light colored eyes. And so when my wife and I, there was uh, a big mall in the North side of Bogota called Unicentro. When we'd go shopping there, I'd walk down the, the hallways and people just stop and stare at me. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, it was my fly open. I got a booger hanging out my nose or something. Yeah. You know, what's going on here. And it's, they just haven't seen, uh, people with light colored eyes or I don't know what it was, sure. but you believe it or not, you even get used to that. Yeah. You get used to people staring at you all the time. No, so. I experienced some of that. Like my mother's Peruvian. So when I would, when I was a kid, I would go to Peru for my summers and, um, I have more of my father's complexion. So I have fair skin and light eyes and, and, uh, you know, I would go to school 
with a mm -hmm. bunch of kids who most of them had like more of an indigenous native look to them. And so, yeah, people would stare at me all the time. And then, you know, I experienced a lot of things you did in that most people were really cool. Some people would say fuera Yankee and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, get out of my country. Mm -hmm. But nobody had a $300,000 bounty on me. <laughs> so I don't know what well, that's I, like. I see that gleam in your eye. You know he's dead and that bounty's off the table, right? There's nothing you can do to collect that money now. So <laughs> get that out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's too bad. You're still thinking about it. Yeah, I can see you. I'm looking at it. I can see you. So much money, man. So, no, man, that. Get the guys in the back there to keep an eye on Yeah, you. they're counting money, too. They're like, that's, three, that's a 300. <laughs> um, so, when you're down there uh, and you get you get this, you know, assignment, you're with Javier, things are progressing. Is there a point when you guys are, you know, you're chasing this guy? And, and we, you know, people know some of the stories where. It's obviously super elusive, has so many people helping him out as far as like other Sicarios. And then, you know, there, is, there are obviously corrupt government officials and police. So you don't know who you can trust, who you can't trust. People are communicating back channels. Do you get to a point in all this where you're like, I don't think we're going to get this guy? Like, do you feel that at some point? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, I went down with the belief that all the Colombian police and military were corrupt. Mm-hmm found out that I was completely wrong. Now, the 18 months after Pablo escaped from his prison until he was killed, Javier and I actually lived in Medellin with the Colombian National Police. And it was part of that search block that, you know, 600-man force that our only job was to try to find Pablo Escobar. Out of all of that, in 18 months, three low-ranking police officers were found to be corrupt. That's and they it. were just, they were making a phone call. Yeah. Um, and it really, honestly, what they did would not have affected our operations whatsoever. So, uh, but I'm saying all that to say that I was so pleasantly surprised. The Columbia National Police are as professional as any foreign police agency I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. They're as dedicated, they're as hardworking. You know, Colonel Martinez, who was in charge of the search block, he hated Pablo. Pablo hated him. They wanted to kill each other, right? Yeah. Pablo sent a letter telling put this in writing that I'm going to kill you, Colonel Martinez. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill your kids. I'm going to kill your parents. I'm going to kill your dog. Well, then, you know, Colonel Martinez and his family lived in an apartment complex. So all the other tenants put a letter together to Colonel Martinez and asked him to move yeah. because they were afraid that Pablo was going to blow up their building. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's the craziness that was going on. That there. is insane. And also to be like, and just so you make sure I'm going to write this letter out to you, like to have a written letter explaining that. That's, did he end up moving out of that building? No. No. I think some of the tenants did. Yeah. <laughs> you could count me in with that group. I would have been like, I'm calling well, one, two, it, three, moving tomorrow. <laughs> that's, and it's a, it was a real threat because, you know, Pablo's, uh, you know, his big enemy was the Cali cartel and, and the Rodrigo Soruela brothers owned a, uh, a chain of drug stores, legitimate drug stores in Colombia. And uh, there was a bomb, he car bomb he set off one time in front of uh, – Centro 93, one of the, the shopping center I was talking about mm -hmm. where the mothers were with their children. Yes. He set the bomb off to blow up the drugstore across the street. But in, in the same bomb, he killed all these innocent people who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that's one of the things that like Pablo did that, you know, in a lot of people's minds really crossed lines is that a lot of these, you know, criminal types, when, it, when you go talk about like mafia and, and even cartel people, 
the killing is a lot of times like it's kind of for other people in your crime world, you know? So it's like mm-hmm. cartel guy killing cartel guy. But when you take it to like public spaces, blowing stuff up and women and children, it's like, it changes everything. You're no longer just a bad guy, you know, messing up other bad guys. You're, you're, you're really at like right. a terrorist at that point. And that, you know what, you mentioned Mexico, there have been documented incidents down there where the bad guys would come into these small towns mm-hmm. for whatever, you know, the people that are ticked them off and they will set up roadblocks so that you can't get in or out and they'll go in and slaughter everybody in those small towns. I mean, it's just, it's horrific what goes on in our world. Yeah. We're so, we're so lucky. We're so privileged in this country, the United States. And at the same time, we're so unappreciative of what we have. Yes. Because I think the rest of the world is like this and it's not. Uh, we were just talking about this. We were just talking about how, you know, it's easy to get lost in like your complaints about like, man, there's too much fucking milk in my coffee. <laughs> but mm-hmm. then <laughs> you think about like how, how easy we have it here. I mean, you know, really compared to the rest of the world, there's a reason why even in the midst of all this, people are still trying to get into this country, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're trying to escape the violence. You know, it's, I wish I had the answer. I, you know, I really do. It's, do you it's think, horrific. Do you think having, you know, really participated in this world, I mean, you're, you're at the forefront of one of the, the most famous story and you see, you know, what happens with the money and the, and the, the drugs and the violence. Do you see any way that that fire is ever put out that we ever don't have this level of violence with this drug? Because like the, the, you go on forever talking about the war on drugs and like you know what what this whole program has done and, and and you know is there any hope that something like this could be like diminish the the violence? It, there's there's a couple of things there. Um, uh, well, you hit on a whole lot of topics right there. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, it's a lot. The, well, the first one, the war on drugs, is the biggest misnomer I've ever heard because there was no war. You know, yeah. when you're when you're going to fight a war, you you collect your allies, your material, your personnel, and you go in to win. Mm-hmm. We're fighting a drug. This war on drugs, going after the biggest cocaine manufacturer distributor in the world, a guy who was responsible for as much as eighty percent of the world's cocaine. Mm-hmm. And what do we send? Javier Pena, Steve Murphy. Does that sound like a war? No. no. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, and we had a lot of support from the embassy, from our headquarters and so forth, but still, it wasn't a war. So people ask us a lot, well, you know, what was the benefit of of taking out Pablo Escobar? You know, did you have any positive effect on cocaine availability? We did. Lasted about two weeks. And then Cali took over. So we went and took out Cali cartel. Then the North Valley uh, cartel takes over. Yeah. Take them out. Then La Oficina de Envigado takes over. And then this guy takes over and that guy. Can you go on any street corner just about in LA and buy cocaine? I've heard today? that you can. I think you can. <laughs> I'm not asking for personal confessions. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, sadly, it's the same in DC. Yeah. So, this all to say, uh, we had lots of discussions about this in all kinds of forms. I'm a firm believer that we as a world cannot arrest our way out of the drug problem. We cannot put enough people in jail to stop the drug problem. True. However, and please don't edit any of this out because I'm not taken away from law enforcement. That's my brothers and sisters. I, I bleed blue till the day I die. We still need the men and women who are brave enough to put a uniform on to protect you and me because mm-hmm. I'm a retiree now. Right. So 
nothing whatsoever against those folks. God bless them. I'm behind you 110%. But maybe we could do something different, like better education. You know, we used to have that D.A.R.E. program. Mm -hmm. One of the, uh, one of the political administrations did away with the funding for that. So it went away. Mm -hmm. I mean, we go speak at schools and, and uh, public events here in the United States. And it's amazing how many people come up. Oh, I remember the D.A.R.E. program. I remember the police officer came and they brought a helicopter in, you know, and that really educated, that really opened my eyes to, to some of the drugs that were out there, you know, that I knew I wanted to stay away from. So they now have funding again. So the D.A.R.E. program is back in our schools, but let's look at other ways to educate the public. Um, you know, we're all worried about COVID right now, the different epidemics that are going around. Did you know that there are roughly 240 overdose deaths per day in the United States every single freaking day? I, I didn't know that actual figure, no. So think about it this way. How many people fly on a big airliner? 250? Yeah, around that, yeah. What if we had an airliner crash every single day for a year? What would the public outcry be to that? Yeah, it would be substantial. Exactly. So that saying that to lead up to this, uh, we need to address the demand issue because this is the sure. simple laws of economics, supply versus demand. I think that a lot of times we demonize, you know, the Latin American kind of countries and people for the drug supply. It was like, we're the ones saying, please send more. Like we, we want it, you know? Yeah. We're consuming yeah. more. And by the way, no, I think in, by your logic, we should also maybe address gun violence in this country. <laughs> There's fucking mass shootings every other day. And then people are like, yeah, but it's not guns. <laughs> okay. Sure. Well, we probably have a little bit of difference of opinion on that. It's the law abiding gun owners are not the ones committing the crimes. Yeah. But I mean, we have like 400 million guns floating around. And it, and it's like, it could be somebody who's like, hasn't broken a law yet. And he just goes, <laughs> just gets a gun. And the first thing people say is like, let's not talk about guns though. <laughs> okay. No, we do need, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a former member of the NRA, believe yeah. it or not. I don't agree with what they do now, to be honest with you. And I'm no longer a member, but I am still a big proponent of the second amendment, and the right to bear arms. I think the so. right to bear arms is important too. I'm not, a, I'm not like a, a, you know, anti-gun. I just think it's crazy that it keeps happening. Like, yeah. You turn on the news. There was a there was a, a couple of weeks ago. There was three mass shootings in a day, and like the first yeah. thing that people do is go, "Let's not make this about guns." Like, all right, man, I I don't know what to make it about. <laughs> I mean, there's just you know, somebody sent me an article here recently, and uh, it was uh, places you didn't want to live in the world, and I think it was seventy places, and the United States ranked seventy one, and it was because of gun violence. Yeah. And I think it was Switzerland. I, I might have this wrong, but it's one of the Scandinavian countries that has an extremely low violent violence rate associated with guns uh -huh. because it's law. You are required to own a weapon in your house. That's interesting it's the law. And I know they did that in Kennesaw, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they made it mandatory. It's a law. You have to own a weapon in your house, maintain a weapon in your house. And burglaries dropped off by like 80%. I mean, <laughs> nobody got shot. I would be more interested in like that conversation than the one that feels like it's avoidance. You know, it just yeah. feels like people don't. Just like, yeah, oh, you, can't turn to you can't turn a blind eye to it. I yeah. mean, we've got people dying every day. Every it's, day. It's, out of control. it's like, you know, like you said, like the opioid crisis. I mean, you know, it's, I don't know. It feels like. It feels like you just turn on the news and you just read about 
it just ha continuing to happen. Um, but we don't, we don't put like enough emphasis on the fact that we, especially as Americans, are the great consumers of drugs. Right. You know. Right. I'm with you 100%. It's we. You know, this is not a reputation we enjoy, but we are the leading consumer country in the world of illegal narcotics. Yeah, it's a, it's also fascinating that you know what I mean. Like, if you want to break down that reality, like, what is that? Why is it? Is it the fact that we are a country of excess that we have so much and that we, you know, need more. I, I don't know what it is, but like, it's really interesting to me that we do consume more drugs. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's it. I think it's excess. I think it's our freedoms, you know, and I'm not complaining about that by any means. I love being in a free country. Yeah. Uh, I would highly suggest people, if you're not happy with our country, just go visit. They don't have to move. Yeah. If you want to move, that's fine. You got that freedom, but Go visit a third world country somewhere and see what those people are going through. And I don't mean go for a few day visit, long weekend. Go live in their shoes for a year just to see how good we have it here. Yeah. Later in my career, when I got promoted up to higher ranks, the administrator of DEA offered me the lead position in Bogota. I would have been in charge of Colombia, Ecuador, or a couple other countries there in South America. And that was a highly sought after post. And I was real honest with her. I said, I'll be honest with you. I'd never want to go live in another country because living in Colombia, as nice as it was for three years, yeah. made me appreciate living in the United States. I can imagine. I can imagine that. Can I ask you back to like the actual chase being on? Is there's the day that you got him, but how many days, like, did you feel like on that day that you were that close? And, and, and were there a lot of other days where you felt the same? Like, oh, we're coming up and then nothing. Initially, um, we were very close. Uh, we had, um, you might know this already, we had the U.S. Army's Delta Force was working with us for 18 months, and the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 was working with us. We were, they were under the command of uh, General Jerry Boykin at the time, who's become a personal friend of mine here later in life. That's major support you got with you. Oh, these are the best operators in the world. Yeah. Let me tell you, these are like, studs they're like muscles with head with a, a brain and the legs walking yeah, around yeah. who you want me to kill what do you want me to break today you know what do you <laughs> yeah. want me to do i have the utmost respect for them i mean yeah. and i've stayed in touch with a lot of these guys uh if and javier we say this publicly if we're ever kidnapped that's who i want to come and rescue me because i've seen what they can do they're unbelievable yeah but initially when we started that second manhunt after pablo escaped from his custom-built prison within three months we could have had pablo back in custody and quite honestly i think within three weeks we could have had him but the colombian colonel that was in charge back then it wasn't colonel martinez it's a guy that everybody calls pajamas because if he'd wake him up in the middle of the night he'd come to the door in his silk pajamas mm -hmm. uh, and he would not call troops out in the middle of the night you know so we'd we'd uh, develop intelligence hey we've got you know we need a manpower we need a we need a 40 man team, let's go, you know, call out the troops, get your, and you don't even have to get up. Just tell one of your subordinates to do it. Well, you know, we've got Reveille at six o'clock and then we've got calisthenics and we're going to have an inspection tomorrow. And, you know, then we have to eat breakfast, you know, and it was nothing was a priority to him. Jesus. Um, so that initially we should have had Pablo, but we did. And finally we got pajamas kicked out and brought Colonel Martinez back in. And then we started making progress. Later in the operation, we did have some downtime where we weren't getting any leads. There was nothing to follow up on. Uh, and Javier, we talked about it. We said, like, 
you know, just let the son of a gun surrender. Let's get back, put him back in prison again, which we knew was going to be another joke. Uh, but then you'd see some police officers that you worked with, lived with, get killed, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of brings you back to reality and stop feeling sorry for yourself and get yep. back on the mission. But then when his family, when he tried to get his family out first to Miami and then to Frankfurt, Germany, and we were able to stop that through all the diplomatic channels that were involved, we knew we were getting really close. We knew he was in a bad state. Uh, he was losing allies. He'd already lo- lost most of his organization. Los Pepe's had come in. They were killing people left and right, which, you know, we don't condone that. We don't condone Los Pepe's. It was just a, a group of murderous vigilantes. And they were just as bad as Pablo was. Right. But they had a lot to do with bringing Pablo down. That's the truth. They used Pablo's tactics against him. And then did the family, did they finally go to like Panama or Nicaragua or something, right? Didn't they go there for a while? After his death, well, they during the man uh, during the first manhunt they did, but uh, after Pablo was killed, the wife and son and daughter moved to Argentina, Buenos right? Aires. Oh, Buenos Aires, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buenos Aires, yeah. Um, wow. So when you uh, when you're when you're coming up on other times though, getting close, like it, it has to be the biggest letdown, right? The the feeling. Oh. <laughs> you don't know, man. There was one time. You know, so if you're flying out in the helicopters and you're in the mountains, they hear you five minutes before you get there because of the, the way the sound echoes off the mountains, mm-hmm. right? So we go on this one operation and we've got really good intelligence where Pablo is. And it's this house up on the side of a mountain and it, he's got the high ground and it looks down. You can see the road. He, he could see us five minutes before we got there. Yeah. So we make our way up. Sure enough, we go in the house and, and, um, there's two females in the house. Uh, we checked, and they're, they're the only ones in the house, but the food on the plate at the table is still hot. We go in and check the bathroom, and the, this shack of a house had a modern bathroom with gold-plated bathroom fixtures, which was a fetish of Pablo Escobar's. For whatever reason, he loved these nice bathrooms, you know? And that, that's not just a story. That's true. That was uh, one of the clues that we knew we were in a really good Escobar hideout. If it had a real nice bathroom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking gold-plated crapper yeah really <laughs> plate of fixtures <laughs> it was kind of sick but uh he always had two ladies in the house one was the cook she's usually the older lady that was a good cook and then he had a younger girl in there that would clean and and you know tend to his personal needs when he wanted to have sex with a minor because he's a pedophile okay. on top of everything else sorry i was gonna go for a joke there never mind yeah no no he's a sick puppy he was he would so, have a minor oh when he married his wife tata yeah 13 years old he was 25 oh dude now she has a book out now i just finished reading it. it's called uh pablo and me and in the book she admits to having an abortion when she was 13 because he got her pregnant when she was 12 years old uh, you have I mean, finally just, told me the story where i don't think pablo is cool anymore oh he's yeah it, oh well uh, it's disgusting that's what it is it's disgusting yeah that's but, super gross that particular house, what he did is it on the other side of the mountain is extremely steep. There were cliffs there and he just, he went over the top of the mountain and down the other side. And, uh, um, I'll go ahead and tell you this part of the story because it's coming out in our podcast when we launch here in a few weeks, but, uh, the Columbia national police were so frustrated. They brought the Hueys in and they strafed the mountainside on the backside of that mountain, just hoping to get lucky, throwing hand grenades out to the forest. Oh no shit. He was long gone. He was long gone. Yeah, it's just, but that's how frustrated it was there. I must, I imagine too, how crazy must it have felt to be him 
like in the, you know what I mean? To have, to know that it feels like a country's army is chasing you and getting away. I mean, the adrenaline surge that this guy must have felt all the time has to be out of this world. Yeah. You can, you know, I can't imagine that you could even ever get a good night's sleep. No. You're worried about having to get up and run. No, you're hiding on in mountains and like, you know, yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta be nuts. Do you ever, by the way, one of the things I, cause you know, you pointed out how wealthy he was and you know, the assets and everything. When the organization gets that big, how does somebody like him track what's his? You know, it's like, it's one thing if I go like, I have a kilo and I sell it. There's a, here's my money, you know, and I know this is my money now, even if I have 10 kilos, but it's like, once you're exporting and it's an illegal business, obviously, like, how do you even keep track of what's, you, where do you keep it? Well, you, he had a variety of investments. Uh, you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of aircraft. Uh, he built more than, this was told to us by the Columbia police, he built more than 800 multi-billion dollar houses out throughout Columbia. Uh, one of them Javier went into, and nobody lived in these houses. It's just investment. Um, a coleta, you probably know what a coleta is. You speak Spanish, but a coleta is basically a hiding spot. Oh, um, I didn't know that. So it could be a hole in the ground. It could be a false wall. Well, Javier was with the police when they found the coleta. It was the in-ground swimming pool on hydraulics. The whole swimming pool pick up out of the ground what? and move out of the way. So you could hide stuff under there. Holy shit. I mean, now, I see, <laughs> now he's cool again. That's fucking cool, man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, money, he had money launderers all over the world. There's, there's bank accounts that'll never be. But you get what I mean? It feels identified. like, yeah, it feels like it's one, like once it hits a certain level and goes beyond it, you're like, man, there's just stuff that you wouldn't even know you have, you know, you wouldn't yeah, when's even know. A, when's enough enough. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's was, gotta be people shaving points off of every bag. You know, it's gotta be like. Well, I tell you what, that's taking your life on your hands in your own hands. But if you do that to him, <laughs> yeah, to Pablo, yeah, oh yeah, he has no compunction whatsoever about having you. Did kill. you ever? Okay, I I heard this story once, and I don't know if if with you it'll ring a bell. I heard a story that one time he had a party. Pablo had a party at a residence of his, and that he had found that one of the servers, like people you know serving drinks and stuff had stolen some like silverware or something. And so true. this is true. He had them hogtied and thrown in the pool. Yep. And that was your entertainment for the next several minutes. And so everybody's watching, watching. Human being drown. Yeah. And they watch him drown. And then it was back to the party. Like everybody sends a message, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, you better fucking laugh and you better not touch my stuff. Yep. That sends a message. That's absolutely true. Javier had an informant that came out and reported that. That is, and you know, you, you wonder why would people go work? You know, why would you want to be a server? Because when Pablo threw a party, man, these are like three to five day events. It's Jesus. every table's got weed on it. It's got a kilo of Coke on it. You know, they got Diente, all the different types of alcohol. They got, uh, the hookers coming in. They Dude. got the mariachis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're hooked, aren't you? Yeah. The story's getting good again. Go ahead. So you wonder why anybody want to go work at one of those places. Cause these are the top drug traffickers who are extremely violent, just as violent as Pablo. Well, the more these people got coked up and smoked up and drunk, the bigger the tips were. So you could go in there and work for five days. You might come out with 40, 50, $60,000 in tips. What? And this is back in the eighties when that's a hell of a lot more money than it is now. Oh my God. And that's yeah, just, that's just, just those drug guys flexing on you. Like here's 10 grand. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing me a fresh cup of coffee. I appreciate that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Oh, man. I wish I would have been a drug cartel guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're going to send some guys in the white coats going to take you and have a little council session with you. <laughs> How wild was it? Because it's funny, too, when you grow up, when you, you know, when you're raised here in the States and you, you forget or you're unaware that, like, our laws are basically, you know, these are law. Like, we have kind of a, you know, people know around the world if you come and fuck around in the United States, like they don't play games when you, when you start talking about getting arrested and going to prison, like it's no joke here. When you're, you're down in Colombia and you hear that this drug cartel kingpin is building his own prison with a, its own soccer field and he's bringing like pro soccer players to play for fun and like it's got his own lounge and like, I mean... You must be, is there a moment where you're like, wait, what's going, why don't you guys throw them in a real prison? Like, what is this? Where are you, what are you guys doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was, that's what happened. So, okay. So there's two ways to look at this mm -hmm. and, you know, try to be open-minded about everything. Um, so the government of Colombia can't stop Pablo, you know, he's setting off these indiscriminate bombs, thousands of people being killed, police officers being killed, cocaine markets, not slowing down at all. We've got a glutton of, of supply up here in the United States, the prices are dropping. And so put yourself in the shoes of the president of Columbia. You yeah. know, you've run on a platform of either pro extradition or, or anti extradition, whatever, but you're promising the people that you're going to try and bring a stop to the violence. Yeah. You've tried everything at your disposal and it hasn't slowed down a bit. Now, can you imagine the pressure he's getting from his own political party, but especially from the opposition political party? Oh my God. Hey, we put you in office because you said you're going to do that. We knew you couldn't do it. You know, we need to kick you out here. We'd say impeach it here in the United States. Yeah. So I just say that to try to get people to look at, at uh, Cesar Gaviria's position. We thought, you know, we as Americans thought this is the biggest joke in the world that you would give into a guy like that. But here's the truth. And I'm not condoning this at all. So please don't take this out of context. The truth is for that one year, Pablo was in prison up until he killed the Moncada and Galeano brothers, the car bomb stopped. Mm -hmm. So for one year, people had peace in Colombia. They didn't have to worry about car bombs going off. So as ridiculous as the prison itself was yeah. in the circumstances, it did have a positive effect. It makes sense in, in the light that you presented in. It, it does. Honestly, actually, when you, when you go, I, and you appreciate the circumstances and like, especially what a president is up against. It does. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, but you know, then again, here's Pablo. He can't control his, his ego and, and it's all about him. And he thinks the Moncada and Galeano brothers are holding out on him, you know, millions of dollars that are rotting away. Well, you know, I mean, the money that they brought in, we've heard it's anything from 10 million to $23 million. It was, had been shrink wrapped, found in a cave, and was rotting it's because the shrink wrap had let go and air and moisture had gotten in there yeah well it, it doesn't start to mold and mildew and rot immediately that takes a good bit of, amount of time sure so the sicarios are telling pablo no pablo he's hot these guys are holding out on you you should kill him you should kill him and and they get pablo so riled up he actually kills kiko moncada himself with a stick and then the sicarios kill uh fernando galeano and this is done right there in the prison and this is what ultimately led to Pablo's escape, because when we found out about it from an informant, we had our ambassador go to the president down there and say, you do something or we're going to go to the press with this. Yeah. So that's when they decided they'd put him in La Picoto, which is a real prison in Bogota. But, 
you know, Pablo was a little bit smarter than that. Yeah, he's so like, that's I'm what out of led here. to this game. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, if you don't mind, about the day of his, you know, capture and, and death. Do, do you, I mean, I imagine you remember every detail of that day, right? It's probably like pretty much when you wake up that morning. Is it an early morning? Is it like a surprise early morning start? You know, like or is it no? No, it was uh, it was just a normal day. You know, we'd get up like five five thirty in the morning. So the barracks that we stayed in uh, was a two story barracks, and down below us it was hot. We didn't have air conditioning, you know. So you sleep with your windows open and mosquito netting. And below us was the kitchen for the school for the entire base. Mm-hmm. Well, they come in about two thirty in the morning to start preparing food for the, all the troops for six hundred people. Yeah. They're not quiet about it. They're down there. They got music blaring, their pots and pans banging. And you learn to sleep through that, believe it or not. Jesus. But, you know, I just got up that morning, just went through our normal routine of collecting information, going out, checking with everybody, see if we're going out on operations, what we're going to do today. Uh, but then I'm standing in the room where the American operators were all, it was like their office. And, you know, it's just nice to have an American to talk to every once in a while. So sure. that's, you appreciate the guys there. And that's when I saw, Colonel Martinez, executive staff, rushing over to his office. So I told the Americans, I said, hey, I'll be back. Something's going on. So I go over there, and, and when I get to the door, Colonel Martinez motioned for me to come on in. Um, and one of the lieutenant colonels whispered over to me, he says, hey, he said, they think they found Pablo for sure. So we're listening, and Colonel Martinez is issuing orders, and he's telling um, it was this group of Columbia police officers called Dehean. That's who we worked with. So there's two majors and then a couple captains and and the running about a 15 man unit. And uh, he says, surround the place. Do not let him get away. We're on our way. Well, if you're loading up 600 people, that's not something you do in five minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to get the vehicles out, the trucks, you got to get, make sure your people are accounted for issue weapons, instructions, all that. So um, the cool thing about that was the guy that found Pablo was Lieutenant Martinez, who was the son of Colonel Martinez. Oh, so wow. I'll, I'll, I'll explain the, the correlation here at, at, in just a second. Yeah. But, uh, well, so the Dehean guys are out there. They got the place surrounded, and they're like, uh, we're not taking a chance on losing him this time. Lieutenant Martinez saw him in the window. He's 100% sure it was him. So they used debt cord, which the, the our military guys from the U.S., gave them months and months of training on how to do raids and things like that. So they blew the door off the, this three-story row house. We go on the first floor. Pablo was seen on the second floor. So they start making their way up. Well, Pablo, and, and this was surprising also, Pablo at one time had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. Yeah. December 2nd, 1993, he was down to one Sicario. Wow. It shocked us. We thought this was going to be a massive yeah. firefight yeah, when yeah. we ever found him. So they run up to the third floor. The police get to the second floor. They yell for them, drop their weapons, don't move. Of course, the gun battle starts. One of our friends is starting to make the, his way up the, to the steps to the third floor, and he trips and falls, which saves his life because Pablo shot at him and the bullet went over his head. The Sicario gets up to the third floor. There's no place else to go. Behind them is a two-story row house. So there's a window on the third floor. He jumps out that window down on the roof of the two-story He's making his way across the roof to make an escape. There's two police officers on the ground behind him. They you know, yell for him to stop. He shoots at them, and they catch him in a crossfire and kill him. He falls off the roof onto the ground. Now, Pablo gets up to that third floor window. He saw that. He knows the cops are coming up right behind him, so he's got to get down on that roof also. So he jumps. 
he's got two nine millimeter pistols and shoulder holster rig that day. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the building adjacent to that two story was another three story row house. So there was a wall there for him to get up against. And he's kind of using that to protect himself from the guys on the ground, but he knows the, you know, the other cops are going to come up to the window here in a minute and they're going to shoot him. So he makes a dash across the roof. The cops get to the window. Everybody orders for him to drop his windows. I mean, drop his weapons. He uh, unloads both nine millimeters and they, he was hit three times that day in the gun battle. Once in the right leg in the back of the leg and once in the butt cheek, which we call those knockdown shots. Neither one of them was a kill shot, mm -hmm. but then the, the kill shot was the two twenty three round through the right ear. That was, that's what killed him that day. Do you, have you, I'm assuming you've heard the, even his son put out this message that that wasn't uh, a kill shot, that it was a, it was suicide because he would never like his whole thing was, they'll never take me. I'll never, you know, and that his son has pushed the theory that he knew he was doomed and put the bullet in his own head. Yeah. We've, we've heard that a lot and we've been asked that question almost everywhere we go in the world. Uh -huh. And here's the truth. It was not suicide. And here's how I know before I became a DEA agent, I was a uniformed police officer for almost 12 years, mm -hmm. trained in murder cases, suicide cases. I worked both. When you have suicide by a gun, when you fire a gun, there's little bits of gunpowder that follow the bullet out of the barrel. Mm -hmm. and they'll travel a certain distance until they lose their velocity and then they'll fall to the ground. But even if you could hold a gun at arm's length and shoot yourself in the ear, which would, you know, it's one in a million shot, the, the gunpowder will travel that far and hit the skin. Mm -hmm. That's what we call powder burns. Sure. You've probably seen the pictures on the internet of Pablo's body. Yes. I took those pictures. I took all those pictures. Yeah. I did not post them there. People have, have gotten them through other means and, uh, I would never post anything like that, but they're there. So you can go examine the side of Pablo's head yourself. Look and see if you see any little black specks on the side of his face, on the side of his, where the ear, where the, where the round went into his ear. There's none there. That's how I know this was not a suicide. It was a kill oh, shot from, from a 223. Well, yeah. That was the caliber that killed him. We had a, uh, uh, film company in the UK approached us about a year ago with the theory that Pablo held the weapon against his head so that the gunpowder would not create the, you know, the, the gunpowder burns. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've talked to experts from ATF about it and the compression of that would have, almost annihilated the opposite side of his head, mm -hmm. you know? So there's, I mean, there's scientific proof out there that he didn't commit suicide. How so it's just, you know, if my dad was Pablo Escobar, I'd probably want to try to change the story a yeah. little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody he's, he's definitely, he, I mean, I, I watched that doc that he, he was in where basically he, I mean, it, it's a difficult position to be in when you, you don't control who your parents are, you know? And it's like, right. He basically was like, I acknowledge that he's done terrible things. I still love him as my dad. It's, you know, it's, it's not an easy yeah. position to be in, I guess. Um, right. Right. How, um, so are you, where are you when the, the kill shot's done? Are you like running up the stairs? Are you in a vehicle or how, how where, what's your position? You saw narcos, didn't you? Yeah. Shows me on the roof. So you're right there. <laughs> he was killed. No, oh. I'm back at the base. Okay. I wasn't there at all. Okay. And that's, that's a big point of our, our presentation and, and our book and every podcast or interview we do 
is there were no gringos involved in that. There's a theory in the, in the special operators community that a Delta sniper killed Pablo from a mile away. Mm-hmm. Now, could they do that? Yeah. I, I believe they're that good. I yeah. mean, I've seen them. God bless them. They're the best in the world. But I know that's not true because I was in the room with them when the whole operation was going down. I mean, we've been living with these guys for 18 months. You know, we've gotten to know each other very well. Uh, gotten to be friends with several of them. So I, I'm not taking anything away from them. I, they could have done it, but so, I know they didn't. So you get, um, you're on radio or whatever, and they go, we got them? Like, do you, is that like, what's the moment like where you find out when you're at the base? Yeah, so I'm standing in Colonel Martinez's office with the other, uh, with his command staff, and the, the radio got real quiet. And he's using a walkie-talkie to communicate with. Mm. You know, and, and I mean, it's it's like a movie. The suspense is building, and the yeah. drama's building, and, you know, you're all psyched up, and you got wide eyes, and you're like, what's happening? What's happening? And then this major comes on, uh, Major, uh, oh, we just talked about him this morning. Uh, I forgot his name. Anyway, he was, he was one of the Dahin majors. He comes on the radio and says, Viva Colombia, Pablo Escobar is dead. Wow. So that's the high five, the back slapping, you know. And, and then do you uh, just jump in a vehicle right away to head over? Well, no, I ran to uh, where we, there was a room there where we had an 800 number tip line uh-huh. where people could, you know, the United States, we were offering a $5 million reward for information Damn. about Pablo. So I ran over there and grabbed the phone to call the embassy, to call the head of DEA at the embassy. I couldn't get through any of the numbers. I ended up calling our admin office or uh, admin office. And, and one of the girls in there, Angie answered the phone. I said, get, you know, his name's Joe Toft. I said, get Mr. Toft here quick. It's an emergency. Okay. 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 You know, so I had to wait three or four minutes and it seemed like three or four days. Oh my you know, God. I'm yeah, just, it's gotta be I'm chomping at the yeah. bit. And so when he finally comes on the phone, he says, I just heard Pablo Escobar was killed. I'm like, well, shit, I was going to tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I said, how'd you know that? Uh, the head of the Columbia National Police, one of the first people he called wasn't the president. It was Joe Toff, the head of DEA. In wow. Columbia. Wow. And that was, that's a testament to the relationship we had sure. with the Columbia National Police. That, yeah. Then Joe's like, I want you to get your butt out there right now. Make sure that's Pablo Escobar. And I said, I'm going. But I said, you know, the, uh, see, we weren't supposed to leave the base in Medellin. Mm-hmm. We being all the Americans. Yeah. Well, the, mil- the military guys, they follow orders. Javier and I, you know, it, we weren't breaking the law by going out of the base. We just figured it was more of a suggestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we broke the rules and we were going out on these operations every day on the gunships, going out on ground surveillance, meeting informants, doing, doing video work, all kinds of stuff. And, and so the number two guy in the embassy, they call him the deputy chief of mission DCM. The DCM had threatened twice recent, you know, just before that, he said, next time I find out you guys go out of the base, you're out of country. You're going back to the United States. Wow. So your furniture, your furniture will be there in six months, but you're going back tomorrow. So I told, I told Mr. Toffa, I said, Hey Joe, I'm, you know, you know what the DCM said? He said, get your ass out there. I want, I want confirmation. This is Pablo. And that was legitimate because we'd heard before they'd capture Pablo and right. it wasn't. So I run back into barracks. I grab my weapons. I get my gear, I got my cameras and all that stuff. And I come running out and there's nobody in the base, but me and the gringos and the guards on the gates. I'm like, well, crap, Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going to go get out there now. Cause I didn't know the address, you know, we didn't have Uber back then. Yeah. I didn't even know an address to tell a taxi. Yeah. So lo and behold, here comes one Jeep driving back in. It's Colonel Martinez with his driver and his bodyguard. He's, uh, he's like, he looks at me, he's like, Steak, what are you doing? And they had a hard time saying Steve. So yeah. my name always came out of Steak. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, Colonel, I need a ride out there. And he's like, get the Jeep. Let's go. So he so took he come back to, he came, he came back to get his video camera. 
So I rode out with Colonel Martinez and, and when you're with the boss, you know, you get whatever you want. Yeah. Turns out my camera is the only camera that worked that day. So I, all the pictures that you see of, of the shooting site up until the, the board got there in the media were my photographs. Wild. Um, now eventually, you know, we went, on, we went through the house, we got up to that third floor window, looking down on the roof. There's the Dahin guys around Pablo's body. I yelled down to them and they're all holding their rifles up. Steak, steak. We got him. We finally got him. Um, so then we go around the other side and I climb up on the ladder and I'm taking the pictures of the body. Well, that's when Pablo's mom and dad showed up. I mean, mom and sister. Oof. Now looking at Pablo, it looks like all the pictures I've seen of him, but I've never seen him until that day. Yeah. And, you know, and he's already dead. So I'm thinking this is the guy, but we still need confirmation through fingerprints or dental records or whatever. Well, Pablo's sister starts showing her ass and she's bullying her way. I want to see that's my brother. Cause you guys can't do anything right. You know, and she goes overseas, the bodyguard laying on the ground. She starts laughing at the police. You guys are the worst cops in the world. You're so inept. That's not Pablo Escobar. You probably killed another innocent person, you know, and she's just giving them down the road. They let her get it out of her sister. And they said, or out of her system, they said, climb the ladder and look up on the roof. And they might've thrown the word bitch in there. I'm not sure. Mm. She goes up there. Now I'm trying to stay in the background because, you know, here's this white guy standing yeah, around yeah. and I'm, I don't want to take away from the Columbia national police, but when I saw her walk over and look at her brother, that's all the confirmation I needed. That was no question. Yeah. That was Pablo Escobar. She flipped you know, the, out. The emotion came yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't mean to sound flippant when I say that, but no, I understand. I gotta be honest with you. It was a little bit satisfying because we knew we had the right guy. Yeah, of course. I mean, that makes all kinds of sense. Now, was there, Obviously, you know, you leave there, I imagine, you know, a series of phone calls and hugs and maybe a couple of drinks and everything. Is there the next day or the next week kind of a like, well, what do we do now? Kind of feel like, is there like, you know, we got the guy, like, what do we do now? Well, this happened on a Thursday. And, and so I wanted to get off site, you know, because the media is starting to show up. Yep. I, Sister told me she saw me on CNN, you know, trying to get through the crowd. And, and I, you know, we didn't want to take away from the Columbia national police. I wasn't there when it happened. We wanted them to have full credit for yeah. what took place that day. So, uh, one of the Lieutenant colonels, Polias, uh, got me a security detail and they took me back to the base. Uh, a couple hours later, you know, the search block comes back in and there's a lot of high fives and, you know, we didn't drink, uh, and in fact, they tripled the guard that night because we thought there were going to be retaliation attacks against us at the base. Oh, wow. Truth is it was the quietest night I ever spent in Medellin. Really? I think the city of Medellin was, was felt relief. Uh, the next day, uh, Javier flies in from Bogota, you know, now he's been down there for six years. So he, you know, these guys love Javier. They think he walks on water and he yeah. does. He's, he's fantastic. So he, you know, he spends a couple of hours going around congratulating everybody and, you know, just doing the thing. And so we hop on the helicopters and they get us to the airport. We fly back to Bogota and this is Friday evening. It's probably six o'clock by the time we get to the embassy. Well, my wife worked in the embassy in the DEA office. She and another late uh, agent's wife planned a surprise party for us. So we came in, there's a couple cases of beer, a bunch of pizzas, balloons, banners, That's you cool. know, People from all over the embassy stayed late to see these pictures and, you know, and it was a nice feeling, but at that party, you know, when we ran out of beer, we, we kind of went out in the city and, um, my wife and I had already adopted our first daughter. 
So she had already arranged for our uh, nanny to spend the night because she knew it was going to be an all nighter. <laughs> we got home about ten o'clock Saturday morning. It was Whoa. one hell of a night. That's one a hell of a night. That's a great night. That was a good party. <laughs> you know, and what I don't was think it? any of us could move. We couldn't function till Tuesday. But I bet. I bet. <laughs> and then when you get like, all right, back to work. Obviously, is, is there a next assignment ready to go? Like, are you like, are they like, all right, here's your next assignment? Well, there was a lot of loose ends to tie up, mm -hmm. but but you're exactly right. And that's what people find so incredible. Oh, after you killed Pablo, did you go to Disneyland? You know, yeah. did you go on vacation? What'd you do? And actually, my wife and I, we did come back to the States for two weeks for Christmas, two weeks. Um, but then when I got back in January, it was, all right, guys, tie these up because we got more cases coming your way. Wow. And that's when the that's the way it is. When, they, yeah. when the case you're working on is over, especially a case of that magnitude. And we knew... That was the case of a career. For That's sure. the case of a lifetime. Yeah. We knew you're never going to work another case, but there's more work to be done. You know, we didn't rid the world of drug traffickers just because Pablo Escobar was dead. Did you ever So you just simply simply move on to the next case? Did you ever go out to his um his ranch? What is it called? Uh Finca Napolis. Yeah, Napoli. Napolis. Yeah, Sienda Napolis. Yeah. Uh oh yeah. With the zoo animals and all that shit. You went out there? Yeah. A lot. How crazy so, was that? <laughs> It's unbelievable. I mean, who has their own freaking zoo, right? I mean, yeah. It's just like I saw the footage, you know, and you see the stories and it's like, I don't know. It's like unimaginable that somebody would have. I mean, it's it's the perfect drug cartel kingpin getaway. It is. Yeah. It is. the So they made a police base out of it during the manhunt. Wow. So if you were out doing operations in that part of Columbia, um, especially like, some days they would fly us out to a mountaintop and they drop off maybe 60 of us and we go on patrols, you know, we're looking for Coke labs. We're looking for any hideouts. I mean, just anything. And this is pro Escobar country, you know, so yeah. everybody's an, I shouldn't say this, but everybody felt like an enemy. Let's yeah. say, put it like that. Well, they were afraid of Pablo is what it was. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, and you had whatever food you were going to eat that day, you had to take with you. And, you know, we'd pick fruit off of trees and things like that. But at the end of the day, the helos would come back in and pick you up, and then they'd fly you over to Napoli's, and you get a steak dinner. <laughs> now, a steak dinner at Napoli's is not like steak dinner at a restaurant. It's like leather. Oh. <laughs> but back at the school in Medellin, you know you're going to get rubbery chicken and rice, so you know it was a little bit of change to your diet. Sure. Uh, you know we got to see all the animals there. Um, the hippos back then, there was only a couple of hippos, you know, now that I think there's like a hundred hippos wandering around Columbia and just causing destruction, devastation. <laughs> and, th and that's, that's just typical of Pablo. He's that's, been dead since yeah. 1993. And his, and legacy, still his legacy lives on just <laughs> still causing destruction. So oh, it won't go away. I be, I mean, like, like many people around the world, huge fan of the Narcos series. You know, it's, I, I, I think it's just obviously like so entertaining the the writing the acting the cinematography the whole the, the storytelling it's it's phenomenal did you when when did this come about like as far as you getting the call that this is gonna you know we're looking to do this like how did that story evolve for you well uh the first i heard about it was in february of 2013 and wow in federal law enforcement um we, mandatory retirement age is 57. Mm -hmm. Javier and I were both 56 in 2013. Okay. But we, we were also at the highest levels of DEA and, and you know, in leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, the next step would have been a presidential appointment. So it's called senior executive service. So in that position, the administrator can grant you up to a three-year extension. So you can stay to age 60. Okay. 
Um, I, both my daughters were in college uh, in Virginia. You know, I needed a job. So she, the administrator offered both of us an extension and we both accepted. A couple years prior to that, a friend of mine who's a small time producer introduced us to two Hollywood producers about doing something with our Escobar story. Um, went, met with both of them. One of them wanted to make a right wing political statement out of one of the operations we went on. The other one, I'm still not sure what he wanted, you know, but it was personally motivated to fit his agenda. Not nobody cared about telling the truth. Right. So you get your hopes up yeah. and then nothing happens. Sure. So when uh, this retired Marine that we worked with in Columbia calls me, his name is Gil Macklin. And I talked to him over 20 years. And so we're catching up on the phone. And I, so I finally said, Gil, what, what are you calling about, buddy? Are you in town? You want to go grab dinner, grab a beer? What do you want to do? And he's, he's like, no, no. He said, I'm calling on business. He said, uh, there's a producer in Hollywood that wants to meet you and Javier and wants to do something with your story. So, yeah, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We've tried this before twice and, you know, yeah. nothing ever happens. Nobody really cares. Well, I don't know how much experience you have with Marines, but he got a little colorful and forceful with his language. He's like, yeah. you SOB, I haven't talked to you in 20 freaking years and you can't do me a favor. All I'm asking you to do is call you. Yeah, well, okay, my, okay, uh, okay, okay. my dad's a Marine. So, yeah. I'm oh, familiar. you're familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That can be persuasive, right? He's very persuasive. Yeah. So I call this guy, uh, Eric Newman. Eric is the creator and executive producer of Narcos. Mm -hmm. So we talk on the phone a few minutes and I said, Derek, thank you very much. We're not interested. And I know he about fell out of his chair. You're in LA. So, you know, people in Hollywood will sell their souls to get on television. Sure. And I, I don't think anybody ever told Eric. No. So we talked a little bit more and he said, listen, I'm coming to DC. He said, bring in a couple of writers, would you have dinner with us? You know, just let us give you our spiel. And if you say no, it's no. And this is an honest to God truth. <laughs> I'm thinking this is going to be a free dinner at a really nice restaurant. Yeah. Well, yes, I will meet with yeah. you. <laughs> so many times that's how things go. It's like free meal. I'm in. Absolutely. I'm easy and cheap. What can I say? Yeah. So uh, I talked to Javier and we did our research and found out, you know, Eric is very successful in Hollywood. His, his father's Randy Newman, who wrote all the jingles from some of the older movies. He mm -hmm. came up in the Hollywood family. And, and when we met, um, you know, we're pretty good at picking people out in, in gatherings. Yeah. I've never seen these guys. So I walk around the restaurant and finally I pick them out. I would just walked over to him and I said, somebody here is holding cocaine. I want all three of you up on the wall. And they just get wide eyed and they're looking at me and then they start laughing. They realize who, who I was. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a nice little icebreaker. Yeah, that's a nice icebreaker. <laughs> so we had dinner there for a couple hours. And, and at the end of the night, he says, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'll talk to Javier, but I, you know, let's, I think we should follow through with you guys. Let's just see if something comes out of this. And as we're walking out of the restaurant, he said, one more question. Why are you and Javier so hesitant to tell your stories? And I was just real honest. I said, Eric, the last thing we want anybody to ever do is glorify this mass murderer, this cocaine distributor, Pablo Escobar, because that's all he is. He's just a thug. He's just a big thug. And at that time, Eric, he said, I promise you now forever. I will not glamorize it. We'll never do that. And in our opinion, that's exactly what happened. He has not glamorized Pablo Escobar. That no. was in, he called me in February 13. We met in March. In May, we signed contracts two months later. In June, I retired from DEA. July, we were sitting in Hollywood in the writer's room, Hollywood in the writer's room starting to write the first series, of wow. the first episode, first season of, of Narcos. It's, it's so good. It's so good because... The thing about um, what these streamers allow you to do that you don't get to do in a movie is by doing, you know, multiple episodes, you really get to get into story. 
this like you get to layer story you get to figure out like you get to see a, a character's like uh personality and and what wh who they are what they're driven by in more detail because you're getting six eight ten episodes to do it you don't have to do it in 90 minutes so you really get to see a, like a real story and a real character evolve and you get that in in, in narcos it's funny you mentioned that because uh, Eric told us, and it turns out Eric had already been working on this project for two or three years before he ever talked to us. Oh, wow. And the original plan was to have a two-hour movie. Then once he got into it, and those writers, I mean, they're phenomenally smart. Yeah. Uh, we went into the writer's room, and they had a library of books that they had all read about narcotics trafficking, about Escobar, yeah. about the Medellin cartel, all these other traffickers. Heck, they knew more about it than what I knew. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it was, um, honestly, it was the last thing we ever thought would happen to us in life. You know, yeah. life after DEA I had no idea oh, we'd be doing anything like we're doing now. now you so guys are your big shot Hollywood guys now. Uh, I'm not big shot, but I'm having a good time in retirement. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, what's the future for you holds, um, more, more speaking tours. Um, any, any other projects you want to share with us? Yeah, the uh, so our book's out now. It came out uh, about a year and a half ago. It's doing fairly well. Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. Incredible. You can you can get it on Amazon, any of the big booksellers. But if you get it through our website, you can get an autographed and personalized copy. That's the only place you can get that. We're working on. Uh, uh, I won't go into much detail, but we're working on four potential TV series uh, wow. involving DEA and law enforcement, and one of them looks like it's about to take off. Great, um, man. The thing I'm really excited about, though, is our podcast coming out. We've Me been too. working on this thing for months. Uh, we're hoping to sign the contracts tonight. Um, Man, that you know, and that's a Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes podcast. It's uh, every show. We've, we've already recorded probably six months worth of interviews. Wow. Uh, it's not just drugs. You know, we've got... It's not just U.S. We've interviewed police officers in the U.K. and Canada we're going to talk to a Pakistani police officer, Australian, New Zealand cops. Uh, we'll eventually get to other parts of the world. And you're going to interview, you interview bad guys too. Well, so one of our first guests, not the first show, but probably the second episode. Yeah. Do you remember the movie blow? Yeah. Johnny Depp. Of course. He, he portrayed a guy named George Jung. Yes. We interviewed George for three hours. Wow. Oh, it was cool. So, uh, and we've got several other, uh, let's call them former bad guys. Okay. Uh, yeah. That are going to be on the show. So it's mostly going to be good guys, but we've interviewed a couple of ATF agents who infiltrated biker gangs, who infiltrated Jesus. the mafia. We're going to have Joe Piston on from the FBI that, uh, yeah, Donnie, made Brasco. The movie, Donnie Brasco. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good friend of ours. Uh, it just, you know, we just interviewed the two lead, uh, the two supervisor DE agents in Mexico when they captured El Chapo, went through the whole manhunt. Man. Just just interviewed the former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis, who was there during the Marathon bombing. It just keeps. This sounds going awesome, going. man. It's, yeah, this is uh, I, this is really cool. I'm so excited. I'm so you know I know I'm acting like a little kid. Well, right now, I'm, gonna, I'm so excited. I'm going to subscribe. Thing. I'm definitely going to get the book Manhunters: How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Um, you've convinced me, by the way, throughout this conversation that Pablo was a real knucklehead. So I'm going <laughs> to. That's a polite way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make note of that. Uh, um, so that must be, a, I hear the guys laughing in the background. So that must be a big deal that I've convinced you. Huh? Yeah. Cause I was like, guys, I don't think you get it. Pablo was a really cool guy and 
I think you've convinced <laughs> me otherwise. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's amazing uh, through our website and through our social media sites. We get tons of positive messages. Man, we get a lot that just, you know, people want to cut our heads off and crap down our throats and do foul things to my mother. And it's amazing. Because you're DEA do. agents and, and because you went after him? Yeah, because we took down Pablo. Yeah. Yeah. They just don't know. Go to, go talk to Columbia's, like you said. Yeah, that's talk to the people that live through it. The, see what they say. The the really the the change in perspective for me. I mean, I never thought it was fucking cool, but I'm saying the <laughs> the uh, the time where I really opened my eyes was when my my Colombian friend talked to me about living there during those that time, and he was like, "It was horrible, man." Like he he talked about how basically terrified he and his family was, and then that's why they that's why they live in the United States. He's like, we. We yep. left to flee that, you know, and he just said, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like violence amongst thieves. It was like everywhere. I mean, he's just, you know, he's like, you just, you were scared to go outside. You were, you just didn't know what was going to happen at any moment. And it was just terrifying, terrifying. It was. It, and, you know, the, it, um, quite honestly, it's kind of embarrassing to be in the position we're in now because, it was just a case we were assigned to. It was a big case. Yeah. You know, I'm not taking away from that, but when that case was over, we moved on to the next case and then Narcos comes along and just really, really, it's been so successful. You know, it's, I think it's the fourth highest rated original content series that Netflix has ever come out with. Amazing. That was in Newsweek not long ago, but it just, it just blew up in the world to the point where, People like to say, well, ah, you guys, we didn't know that about you. You're so humble. You never talk about it. Well, you ask me, I'll tell you. I'm not going to go around. It's not like you go into a new DEA office. Same way with agents. You know, you don't walk in and say, hey, I killed Pablo Escobar. What'd you do today? Yeah. Sure. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's part of your job. Yeah. So now people, thankfully, you know, uh, and again, I, I, please don't take this out of context, but people refer to us as heroes. Mm -hmm. We're not heroes. We were professional law enforcement officers that did our job, just yeah. like most cops do around the world. It just so happened that a show called Narcos comes along, blew it out of proportion. Yeah. The real heroes, and we tell this to every audience that'll anybody that'll listen to me, I'll tell you this story. The true heroes are the Colombian National Police because they took their country back from this piece of crap named Pablo Escobar. Those are the real heroes. Yeah. Well, that's very that's uh, that's cool of you to to make that distinction. Um, and I'm sure they're, they're thrilled to hear that. Um, I appreciate you coming on and uh, chat with me today, Steve. This was a really a lot of fun, very informative and, uh, and super entertaining too. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate being here and, and you know, I appreciate your sense of humor and I love having the guys in the background. <laughs> uh, they, they're, you should give them a raise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just take it easy. So, uh, <laughs> No, you got to give them double nothing now, right? Yeah. Hey, man, you're the one with the drug cartel money, okay? Not me. So, uh, no, I'm going to get a copy of the book, and um, I really am looking forward to the podcast. I'll, I'll definitely be checking it out. So, Steve Murphy, thank you so much for coming on today. Tom, thanks so much. Hope to meet you in person someday. Me too, man. 